Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, that through a gospel like Mark's gospel, we can seek to understand you better. We can have a better grasp of why you came. And Lord, we can truly see uh, our real need. And Lord, help us today um, as we place ourselves under your word, that you would have freedom to work in our hearts, Lord, that we would see you afresh, that we would be encouraged by your gospel, and Lord, our hearts would be changed as a result. So Lord, use me as your messenger, simply to be your mouthpiece, and Lord, may my words reflect the truth that you desire for us to hear, we ask in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. You know, one of the things that um, uh, I have tried to, to, to repeat a number of times just to help us have a grasp of what the Bible is about um, is simply a, a summary of the Bible. And you've heard me say it a number of times. I'm going to say it again um, just to make sure that you get it. Um, it's not going to be up on the screen or anything like that. But um, we, can, uh, we can view the Bible really thinking about Christ uh, just in, in five ways. Uh, and in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. Okay? The Old Testament predicts the coming of the Messiah. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed, right? He's, he's on display. We see him as he comes as a babe and as he goes to the cross and as he dies in our place. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. The whole purpose of the book of Acts is to show us the, the spread of the gospel. And that gospel is about this Jesus who is revealed in the book of, or in the gospels and who was predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, in the epistles, Jesus is explained. And so the, the, the apostles, looking back now at their time with Jesus and back on their, their life as apostles, take time to explain the gospel further in more detail, in more understanding, to see the character of Christ, who he is, and what he has done. But not just in a story format, but in, in a far more theological implication format, as you see many times, you know, like Paul does. The first half of a book is explaining the doctrine. The last half of the book is going to be application of that doctrine for living. So he's predicted, he's revealed, he's preached, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, um, he is expected. Uh, we anticipate the Lord's return. This morning, as we jump into chapter 11, we actually come to a passage that is the end of one section of Mark's gospel and is beginning a new section in Mark's gospel. And that's why the title here is The Beginning of the End, because what we have here is the beginning of Jesus and his presence in Jerusalem. And so all the time so far has been Jesus in Galilee, going around the different villages, and then for the past couple of chapters, Jesus has been on this journey to Jerusalem with the pilgrims who are coming for Passover, but now, as we come to our text today, chapter 11, 1 through 11, he is now entering into Jerusalem, and so this is beginning what is typically called the Passion Week. And we're gonna find him, first of all, uh, on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple, uh, interacting in two villages, Bethany and Bethphage. And from there, he's gonna go down into the temple, 
And once he goes to the temple, that same day he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives into those villages. And then the very next day he goes back to the temple. And that's where he begins to challenge uh, the, the religious leadership in what they're doing in the temple. From there, he comes back to Bethany. And then the next day he goes back into Jerusalem, into the upper room. And then from the upper room to Gethsemane. And then from Gethsemane, he goes to um, the, the home of the high priest. And when he's in the home of the high priest, the question that is being asked is, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And from there, he is moved to the palace where Pilate is residing. And the same question is asked, but a little differently. It's, are you the king of the Jews? And then from Pilate's palace, he is moved then to Golgotha. This is after Pilate has put him on display and offered him against Barabbas. And the people are crying, we want Barabbas. And they're saying, crucify him. And so he ends up going to Golgotha, the place of the skull, to be crucified. And the inscription, of course, over his head is the king of the Jews. And then Jesus will be taken from there to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where his body is laid to rest, and of course, from which he rises. So we have, this, we have this location kind of guiding us through the stories here. We've been in Galilee, now we're moving into Jerusalem, but Jesus really isn't going to Jerusalem. He really wants to go to a particular place in Jerusalem. And that particular place is the temple. Because the temple is the heart of Jerusalem. You must say, Jerusalem's the heart of Israel. But the temple is the heart of Jerusalem. And the temple is where worship of the God of Israel should be taking place. And so chapter 11 and chapter 12 in particular are going to all be dealing with Jesus in the temple and what he finds there, and how he deals with what he finds there. Let me remind you that the people are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, and so there's literally thousands of people that are on this road, taking this journey to Jerusalem. And the historians tell us that the population of Jerusalem would swell almost 10 times during that Passover season. So this is not just a few people trickling like you would have a, you know, at Lake Chabot going there, walking in that kind of stuff. We're talking about a mass of people all singing, celebrating, doing what they do, which is all part of the procession into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is a great time for the Jewish people uh, to, to gather. And it's a long journey, 18 miles uphill from Jericho to the town of Bethany in particular. Now, you, you probably all grew up with those, you know, going to school uphill both ways stories, right? <laughs> we really have lost the art of what it is to walk on a journey. The reality is I did walk to school. And the reality is that it was downhill to go to school, but it was uphill to come back. But it was quite a distance. Today, we're like, well, I'm not going to let my child walk anywhere, right? We're going to drop them off right next to the curb and make sure that you know, they're squeaky clean and there's someone there to collect them. There was a journey here, and it was a, it was a, it was a hard journey. 
And of course, he ends up here at this place called the, the Mount of Olives, about a mile from Jerusalem. And it is on this mountain that, that Jesus loved to go pray. It's also a place from which he could see the city of Jerusalem. And there was one structure that was emanating from that city, that was prominent in that city. It was a, it was a wonder of the world at that particular point in time, and it was the temple um, Herod's temple in particular. And so this morning, as we, we look to this passage that is often called the triumphal entry, um, I, I would like for us to consider it in this light. Mark wants us to see Jesus as king. Yes, that is true. And he's a king who's coming into Jerusalem, but he also wants us to see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, that he's a very different kind of king. He's not the kind of king that, that you and I typically would think of or that mankind would typically think of or in particular in this case that the Jews are actually thinking of. The person they are expecting is not the person who arrives. They have in their mind an idea of who he should be. But this text is screaming at us, the king is coming, but he is a different kind of of king. So let's pick it up at verses 1 through 6. Let's just read that section, and then there's some things that we want to we think through as we talk about what I'm calling the Messiah's preparation. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them Go. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you go on a journey, maybe a husband and wife, approach things completely different? I mean, there's some people, when they're going to go on a journey, they have to have everything laid out. I mean, all the hotels are laid in order. All the routes are already kind of put together with, with you know, Google Maps or something like that. We're leaving at 10 o'clock, and we're going to arrive at, you know, 9 o'clock at night, and we're going to stop at these three places and these restaurants along the way, and we've got gift cards and coupons to go along with it too, right? You know who that person is, right? Then there's the other person, and the other person is we're going on a journey. Where are we going, Dad? Get in the car. Right? Get in the RV. Well, where are we going? We're going to find out. We're just going to drive and see where it takes us. Now, I know that's an extreme scenario, but there are different ways that you go on a journey. Now, I just want you to, to know that as we think about what God has purposed in sending his son to, to this earth to accomplish was not some kind of haphazard plan. It wasn't just like, well, you know, just kind of get down on the earth and, and kind of, you know, find your way to get to where you need to go. No, this was a very specific, detailed 
purposeful plan. And so one of the things I think we need to, to first of all note as we see that Jesus is a very different kind of king is that Jesus in this story is in complete control. The events we see taking place in this account are not some sudden change. As if somehow, you know, Jesus had a, 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 a Cheetos cheetah moment. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys remember that. You remember, yeah, 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 right? You just shake his head and the cheetah just kind of, that's, a, that's an old commercial. I'm sorry, you probably don't know what that is, right? Some of you know what it is, know what I'm talking about. That's not what happened here. This was planned. This was purposeful. It was his idea to get the cult and enter into Jerusalem through the eastern gate, which overlooks the temple. He is very precise about the unfolding of the events as he is going to walk or or enter into Jerusalem. Now, apart from riding in a boat, this is the only time where Jesus has ridden on anything. He's walked everywhere. Now, he's not on this donkey because he's tired, right? There's a perfect plan in motion, and Jesus is in control of it all. And let's just take a moment to think through this. As we think about the Passion Week, and we continue to see the same thing, uh, the same theme over and over again. When Jesus goes to the upper room to celebrate the Passover and to send Judas on his way to betray him, who is in control? Jesus is in control. When the guards led Judas, or led by Judas, come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and finally arrest him because Judas kisses him on the cheek, Jesus is in complete control. He's not taken by surprise. When Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate is is asking whether you are the king of the Jews, Jesus is in complete control. When Peter is outside a little early in the story, And he comes out of the high priest's house and he looks at Peter who has denied him three times. Jesus is in complete control. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. That's not like, well, I give up. That's, I am in complete control. Now, friends, it's, it's really helpful for us just to be mindful and to remember that this is a story that shows us once again that Jesus, the Godhead, has a plan and is working a plan, and this plan right now is, is being fleshed out, and the events that are taking place here are all part of that divine plan. It's purposeful, and Jesus is in complete control. Now, that is not unique to Jesus. What I mean by that is, even in our lives, the things that we are facing, one of the things that's helpful for us that we can be confident of is to know that he is always in control. We go through suffering, we go through trials, we go through difficulties, and we don't necessarily see what's happening, but he knows what's happening, and he knows why, and he knows how. We don't have that kind of knowledge. We don't have that kind of precision, but He has a plan for us, and he is always, always in complete control. So we don't shake our fists at him, but we say, okay, Lord, this is what I'm going through. Give me wisdom, give me strength, give me discernment, because I know that I have a destiny that is far better than this world. And whatever trial you may be taking me through is a part of your purpose and plan for me, but also part of your unfolding of of your work on this earth through me, 
But my comfort is that heaven is my home. That is my citizenship. And the fact that Jesus is in complete control fuels me then to say, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lean on you. Not only is Jesus in complete control, secondly, Jesus is consistent with the scriptures. There is no maverick behavior going on here. What Jesus is doing is carefully following the line of scripture. Now, two specific places that this would be true. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And then Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. Let me read Zechariah 9, 9. We read there that the Messiah is going to be coming, riding on a donkey. This is prophecy. This is anticipation. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's no surprise that Jesus is coming in the manner in which he's coming. This is how scripture prophesied it. This is what scripture said would take place in Genesis 49, 10 and 11. This is a a messianic oracle given by Jacob to Judah. And here we see that Messiah will, will call for a tethered donkey. It says there, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Again, this this donkey motif, this looking ahead at something different about this king. And so when we read the pages of God's word, it's particular in the gospels and the acts and in the epistles, We read statements such as, these things happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled, right? Or according to the scriptures. Last week, as we we considered the the, the resurrection, Chris was reading from 1 Corinthians 15. And right there, it's these things happened according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Jesus, on this day, making his way into Jerusalem, is doing that according to the scriptures, This is not some kind of a new plan. This is a plan that has been uh, at work before the foundation of the world. Jesus is consistent with the scriptures. He's always consistent with his word. Scholars say there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ Jesus in the New Testament. Thirdly, Jesus is asserting his authority. Kings have rights over property. That's just a reality. This is what the Israelites found out when they gathered together during the the, the time of Samuel's presence. And they said, we want a king just like the other nations. And God allowed them to have that king in disobedience, is what they were asking for. But he says, if, if you are going to have this king, this is 1 Samuel 8, I want you to know something. This new king, he'll be a king who takes. 
He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take your crops and your grain and your servants and your flocks and your slaves. That's what earthly kings do. They live off the proceeds and the produce of the people. They make demands on the people. They assert their authority for the things they, that, that may not benefit their people. They often treat the people in abusive ways. But notice here that Jesus sends out two of his disciples to get a prepared cult. It says, go into the village in front of you and immediately you shall enter it. You will find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now, friends, that's a very different kind of king. He's asserting his authority, saying there's a cult, there's a cult prepared, but we're not just going to take. We're going to use, but we're going to give it back. Now, these are small little things that help us understand a little bit about who Jesus is. This king has the, the right to assert his authority, but he is not selfish. He's not demanding. He's not abusive. He's not an oppressive king when he's done, he will return it back to the people that own it. So here we see Jesus acting with authority of the king, but he's not like any king before him. When he sits on his throne and the government is on his shoulders, he will have as his reputation that he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. So he's asserting his authority, but not like any other king would assert their authority. Fourth, Jesus is revealing his identity. And some of you um, reality TV gurus will know that there is a typical formula that takes place, um, especially over the last couple of decades with reality TV. I'm talking about shows like What Not to Wear, uh, I'm talking about shows like Home Makeover. It's okay. You don't have to acknowledge that you watch any of these things, okay? Um, uh, so what not to wear, Extreme Home Makeover, or the ongoing Fixer Upper. And, and here, here's how it goes. We'll use what not to wear uh, to, to talk about first. Um, in, in what not to wear, a, a fashion criminal is a, ambushed and given a fashion makeup and hair makeover. And then at the end of the show, something happens. In Extreme Home Makeover and Fixer Upper, um, usually there's a home that's in disarray, or a Fixer Upper, there's a home that's really in disarray, and they come in and, and they come in and they, they restore all these different things. And if you remember from Extreme Home Makeover when it was all done, what was the saying? Move that bus, right? So what you have going on here is Jesus, in a similar way, coming to Jerusalem on this donkey, this is, in one sense, his big reveal. Now, hear this. Up until this point, when Jesus has exercised his divinity in casting out demons or healing people or any kind of miraculous thing, what typically has he said? Hey, listen, don't tell anyone. See, there's always been this kind of secrecy thing going on. I don't want to be revealed yet. This is not the time to be revealed. But friends, now is the time. 
In the divine plan, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this is the moment of his big reveal. So the silence and hiddenness found repeatedly in Jesus' ministry throughout Galilee will now change to Jesus revealing himself boldly, willingly, publicly, and rather than slipping in through the, the crowd into Jerusalem, which with so many people he could have done, and going into the temple like that, he is coming publicly to be seen, and he's coming, and he's coming in such a way that he will he will cause those religious leaders now to, to, to be on their, might we say, religious toes, wanting to challenge him more or wanting to arrest him more. He is provoking them. And this will have rippling effects that will end up with Jesus being arrested, tried, beaten, hanging on a cross, and dying for our sins. And ultimately having this, this mocking statement over his head, king of the Jews. You see, there's something very purposeful going on here. The king is coming into Jerusalem, but he's a very different kind of king. This is not the kind of king you and I, or, or man just left to himself would, would think, should be coming in to be the deliverer of the people. Secondly, notice the Messiah's procession. And it's a different kind of procession in that um, it's not, again, quite what you would think a king to be doing. Verses 7 through 10. Now, what does a kingly procession that is called a triumphal entry into a city look like? Now, remember, if Mark is writing to believers in Rome, many of them may have seen something like this. They certainly have a Roman view of what it is to be a victor coming into the city. And so in that context, it was a spectacular event. It was a, it was a day set aside where everyone's stopping what they're doing, and they're coming, and they're there to celebrate this, this, this ruler or this, this victor coming into the city. First, the armies would come, and then, then the generals who led those armies, and then the, the conquering hero, and he would come riding a white stallion with all his power and glory. That was considered the highest honor in that Roman culture. His name would be um, on so many documents, he may even have a, a city or a territory named after him because of what he has done for the Roman people. And his name and his achievement would be remembered, and the good news of his victory would be spread throughout the kingdom of Rome. Somewhat paradoxical, isn't it, that here comes the one who's claiming to be the king of the Jews, but the way in which he comes communicates that he is a completely different kind of king. So what kind of king do we have here? Well, notice, first of all, his great humility. We see great humility here. The king comes on an unridden donkey. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So the disciples, having successfully secured this donkey, um, placed their cloaks on that donkey to, to make a saddle. They, this, is a, this is a saddle now that is fit for a king, but not the kind of saddle you would typically think of. This is not the kind of saddle that you would, you would go to London and, and see, like in, in Buckingham Palace or something like that, set aside, this is a royal saddle. You know, like, wow, 
it's leather, you know? I mean, they just took their cloaks and put it on the donkey so he'd be maybe a little bit more comfortable. Also, the, the riding of this donkey was a kingly act which identified Jesus with the royal line of David. And although this was an unridden donkey, it was an unridden donkey that was fit for a king because a king in this kind of ceremony was only supposed to come in on an unridden animal like a, a horse or a donkey. But what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't have to break in this donkey. Now, again, you know, we, we live in homes. We, we live in apartments. Um, we might have yards, but very few of us have donkeys in our backyard, right? Um, well, you might use that figuratively. I understand that. But, but we, don't usually, we don't understand necessarily. We understand that in theory what it means to break in an animal, but we don't necessarily have the comprehension to understand actually how it's done. But this donkey was prepared for Jesus, and it was an unridden donkey, but Jesus simply harnesses that donkey, gets on it, and comes mounted on a donkey into Jerusalem. And what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm coming with humility. I'm coming bringing righteousness and salvation. And in coming this way, Jesus now brings into open what has previously been kept secret. He's saying, I am your king. I am your Messiah. I am your deliverer. And he knows this is a bold statement. But not only is he coming on a donkey, which would be a statement of humility, it's also a statement of peace. He's not coming as a, a warrior to rule. He's coming as a king who brings peace. He is the prince of peace. So he comes, first of all, with great humility. Secondly, um, he comes, and there's, there's a great celebration. And, and what we've already seen here is that there's a donkey fit for a king. There's a carpet now um, that is also going to be fit for a king. And notice what this carpet looks like. The way uh, the, the, the people celebrated Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was, it was rooted in the Old Testament, in particular in 2 Kings 9.13, where Jehu comes into the city, who is now being crowned as king. And what the people did is this. I'm reading verse 13 there of 2 Kings 9. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him, uh, on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And that's what we read here in our text, right? That many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they, make, that they had cut from the fields. So this laying down of cloaks was a symbolic way of communicating and expressing a willingness for this king now to rule them, to have everything that they have. It was a submission to this king. It is saying, I am supporting you. And to, to symbolize that I'm taking the, the clothes off my back and I'm letting you walk all over them. I am here to do your bidding. I am giving you everything I have. So in their eyes, this, this deliverer was coming into Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman oppressors. This is, this is their concept of what the Messiah was and what his purpose was. He was coming to deliver them from this oppression. And they're all for it. They're all in. They were rolling out the red carpet, so to speak. And they were singing. 
And not only do we have a carpet for, fit for a king, we have a, a chant or a song fit for a king. Notice verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so sometimes the Psalms, this is Psalm 118, sometimes the Psalms uh, have these kind of refrains, this back and forth echoing going on where you have one group that's saying one thing and one group that's saying another thing. And you can almost imagine that, that the, the group in the front is saying, Hosanna, and the group behind is saying, Hosanna, and the group in the front is saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the group behind is saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. There is this chanting going on. And it's kind of a, a chant, a song, a celebration, a praise that is happening. But this is happening all around Jesus. So this is incredible celebration, this incredible song that's taking place here. And to them, Jesus was the coming one that John the Baptist talked about in chapter one and verse seven. I am preparing the way for one who is going to come, that's what John is saying. This Lord, so the one expected king of David's line who is about to establish his earthly kingdom is here now and so they're celebrating it once again. That's why it says blessed is the coming of the uh, coming kingdom of our father David. They're thinking the rule and the kingdom is going to be established now through this one who is entering into Jerusalem. And there are reasons for that kind of thinking. But there's this great celebration taking on. So just try and imagine the scene. Imagine the, the, the kind of activity, the kind of noises that are going on. A mass of people, Jesus coming on this donkey. They're laying their, their cloaks in front of him. They're waving these palm branches. Great humility, great celebration, but there's also great ignorance. And here I am wanting to put the, the PowerPoint ahead, not realizing that the computer's gone. So there's great ignorance. This would be the third thing under that point. What we see here is that the crowd is extremely excited and enthusiastic about Jesus coming as the king. Not only they laying their, their cloaks down as a carpet, they're singing a song fit for a king, but they're waving these leafy branches cut from the fields. Now, what's, what's the significance of that? I mean, when someone comes and you're having kind of a big celebration, you quickly run to the fields and get a, get a leaf and just, you know, wave it? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess so, but there's something more symbolic that's taking place there. These leafy branches or palm branches represented their nationalistic desire to be delivered. But 150 years before this, Simon Maccabeus actually overthrew the oppressors and when he came into the city, there was praise, there were palm branches and there were musical instruments. And so these, this is a reflection of, of what happened then. This was a symbol of Israel, it was a symbol of the restoration of that particular nation. So what, what is it that we have here that reveals to us their, their ignorance. So what, what is it that they were, they were ignorant about? And there's three things that I would just want to draw your attention to. First of all, they were actually ignorant about the king's identity. They, they really did not understand who Jesus really was. Certainly they had seen him as a miracle worker 
but not necessarily as the Lord whose path was being prepared by John. They saw him as a revolutionary leader, but not as the son of God. They saw him as a political deliverer, but not as the suffering servant that we find in the end of chapter 10. Although Jesus came and he is on display, Mark is trying to show us over and over again, asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Even here, they have an idea that he is the Messiah, but they don't understand who this Messiah really is. Now, friends, it's, it's, it's important for us to recognize that there are many religions that will recognize Jesus and say, we believe in Jesus, and that Jesus is an important part of, of who we are. But the Jesus that they believe in is not the Jesus that is revealed in the pages of God's word. And there can be a lot of, a lot of praise and a lot of celebration, a lot of talk and a lot of activity, a lot of lessons, even a lot of preaching. But if Jesus is not the same Jesus that's recorded in the word of God, it's not the same Jesus. He's not the same Jesus. So they, they're, they're ignorant here about his identity. But not only that, because they're ignorant about his identity, that leads into the second thing, they're ignorant about the king's mission. Why is he coming? He is coming in their minds to overthrow Rome. But they had no idea that he had to come to be crowned with thorns. Not to sit on a, a, a Jewish throne, but be crowned with thorns, to suffer, to be mocked, to be scorned, to be accused with blasphemy, to be put on trial and found innocent and yet crucified. The idea was foreign to them. They only had eyes for a military and political deliverer. And that's what they were thinking when they're saying Hosanna. Because the word Hosanna means save us. Save us now. This is happening. A king is coming. A king is entering into Jerusalem. This is wonderful. This is great. Let's see this happen. They were blind to their real need. And that was a savior who would die for their sins. So they're ignorant about the king's identity, about the king's mission, but they're also ignorant about the king's subjects. These are the people for whom Christ was actually dying. In their minds, Jesus of Nazareth, this miracle worker, was coming to bring deliverance to the Jews and the Jews alone. But what they didn't understand that is that he was not coming just for the Jews. The deliverance he would bring would be for both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich or poor, male and female. He was not just the national king of Israel, but the multinational king of the world. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's not coming into Jerusalem just for Israel. Now he is coming for Israel. But the pages of God's word, both before the Gospels in the Old Testament and after the Gospels in the book of Acts, in the epistles, tell us and show us that he has as his heart not just Israel, but the world itself. Let me remind you of a promise made to Abraham in the Old Testament. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of Israel shall be blessed. Is that what it says? 
No, it says all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as I've said many times already, the great anticipation of the Jews in Jesus' day was this, this new Jewish political kingdom that would overthrow this Roman occupation and drive them out. But what is the plan of Jesus? His plan, as Mark is laying out, is to save his people from all nations of the world from their sins. This is what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And see, we, we, we can be, look at this, and, and they were just kind of focused on their own nation, and, and rightfully so. Listen, there's nothing wrong with them necessarily saying Israel's important, because Israel was God's chosen nation, but God would chose Israel to be the vehicle through which he was going to disseminate his gospel to the world. That was true in the New Testament, but that was true also in the Old Testament. Let me remind you of Jonah. Jonah was sent to take the truth of God to a foreign people. The gospel was always supposed to be for the nations. As we read the book of Acts and the epistles, we see the kingdom anticipated and being sent out to the nations. And then, of course, the, the refrain in Psalm 67, verses 4 and 5, is being fulfilled in one sense because of this commitment to the nations. It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so, friends, it's important for us then, even, even at times we think, you know, the United States, God's most favored nation. There's been lots of nations through the history that have thought that they were the unique and only special nation that God was going to work through. One that comes to mind is the nation of Denmark. There was a leader in Denmark that, that thought that God had blessed this country and he was, going to, he was going to use Denmark as the place where everything was going to happen. And certainly as we look at the United States, we have been a place where God has taken the gospel to all parts of the earth. We need to be thankful for that. But let's not just assume that somehow the United States is the equivalent of Old Testament Israel because it's not. And if we're honest... This is a wicked country. And we are people who are living in the midst of a wicked people. The nation that God is concerned about is the nation that makes up his church, his people, his citizenship. And as that, we do our best to live out our lives in the context where he has places with us, the United States or Bolivia, which is going socialistic, right? Or Ukraine that's come out of communism that's trying to struggle things. The, the gospel goes forward in all of those contexts because it's the kingdom of God that is the citizenship that is the most important thing. And friends, it's important for us to recognize some of that distinction. So Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a different kind of deliverer. He isn't like the Alexanders or the Napoleons of this world. Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he's the founder of Nine Marks Ministries, uh, reflects on some of the differences between Christianity and Islam, and here's what he says. 
When you compare how Jesus comes into Jerusalem with how Muhammad entered into Mecca, you can see how Jesus is such a different kind of king than any kind of earthly king. Muhammad entered into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. Today, in the uh, Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. Jesus, however, entered Jerusalem on a donkey accompanied by 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by the people waving palm branches, a traditional sign of peace. He wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome. Whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation, not by force. So he's a completely different kind of king. So we've seen the preparation, we've seen the, the, the procession, but now as we, we move into verse 11, Jesus arrives at the temple and we see the Messiah's inspection. Here I go again. Habits die bad. And as I read verse 11, let's just read it together actually. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now as I was reading this, I was just thinking to myself, I wonder if when Jesus was coming into, into Jerusalem and into the temple, he is remembering his first time at the temple when he was 12. Now, you guys have been to different places. Maybe you've seen things twice, different times, different eras. What's going on in his mind? I don't think Jesus was in awe of the magnificence of its structure or of the thousands of people that were present. I think that actually the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12 would tell us otherwise. I think that the, the pages of the gospel paint a much more melancholy picture of what Jesus was experiencing there. In fact, it was at Luke's gospel tells us before he actually finally went into Jerusalem and into the temple that he wept over Jerusalem. And he's weeping over Jerusalem because of their abandonment, the way they have become barren spiritually. That was his heart's concern. So this text is often referred to as the triumphal entry, but in Mark's gospel, it is anything but triumphal. I mean, this is how it ends. And he entered Jerusalem. You just think of all the fanfare that went on. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. It's very, very anticlimactic, isn't it? And notice, no more fanfare. No more people waving branches. No more people throwing their cloaks down at him. In Matthew's gospel, we're told, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Luke reports that the city was so electrified that the stones were ready to cry out. But here in Mark, there's no mention of these things. It's like, it's like the parable of the sower 
where some received the word with joy, but it had no root and only lasted a short time. The crowd disperses just as mysteriously as it assembled. And friends, Mark's account is a warning to us all. It's a warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Just because you have a thousand or more people that are singing songs that are biblical does not mean those people are praising the one true God and worshiping him as he is and are actually giving their lives as disciples to follow him. And today's church, friends, is all about the big deal. It's all about the big celebration. It's all about the pomp and the noise and all this kind of stuff. And you can go and you can have your experience and you can chant and and sing and all this kind of stuff. And of course, there's a place for all that. But does it last? Is it actually taking root? Is the gospel actually penetrating the heart? Or is it superficialism? It's a warning, friends, against all of that. In Luke's account, as I mentioned, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, not because of their political oppression, but because of their spiritual blindness. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that when Jesus came into Jerusalem that he saw the political oppression of Rome and how wicked and how awful the Romans treated the Jews that were there? Do you think there was oppression? Do you think that there were guards that would, that would hit a Jewish citizen? Do you think that they would maybe arrest someone that shouldn't be arrested? Do you think there was that kind of stuff that was going on? Let me tell you, all right, when Rome is in control, who's in control? It's Rome. But notice, Jesus doesn't come to say, hey, hey, you need to stop that. Hey, you need to stop that. You need to stop that. You need to treat these people kindly. No, what does he come and do? He comes to find the real problem that the people are suffering from. And that problem is rooted in their soul. It is a heart condition. And friends, it's important for us even to remember as we go through the Gospels here, and because today's world right now is full of this theme of social justice, and friends, there's a place to have that discussion, but if that discussion is made without considering the Gospel that is feeding it, It is simply going to be a man-made response. What people desperately need today, but they don't want to hear it, is the gospel. They need to know Jesus Christ. They need to, to be citizens of a new kingdom that is ruled by a master whose name is Jesus. And so to have a discussion about social justice, which is an important discussion, there are abuses that are happening, but friends, someone may be abused Now, and it's temporal, but someone's heart may be estranged from God, which is eternal. And we who have an understanding of that because of what Scripture says, need to focus more on that to give us a perspective then of how we go about dealing with social justice in a way that would be appropriate and right. So temporal justice and equity is not the gospel. We need, in fact, an eternal justice that comes only through the cross. That must be primary. And that must be the the lens through which we look and we seek to understand how we can be about 
changing things that we see that are uh, uh, oppressive and abusive. And here's just another note. You know, well, didn't Jesus heal people? Didn't he cast out demons? Yes, but he didn't heal everyone. When Jesus goes and heals a, a blind man at a pool, do you think he was the only one there? There was a whole bunch of them. Well, how come he only healed that one? Because he doesn't care about the rest. No. The reason we have a record of him healing that is because it was an illustration to show us the spiritual truth. He is more concerned about the hearts and the spiritual condition of people than he is about their oppression. That doesn't mean that he's not concerned about their oppression. I'm just saying one's more important than the other in the grand scheme of things. You get that? All right? All right you all still love me, right? Okay, good which I, I do value, but in one sense, I don't care, if you understand what I'm saying. Truth is truth, right? Now you hate me because I said that, right? <laughs> Just trying to get at all different angles there, okay? Jesus' destination wasn't Jerusalem, but the temple. This was really a reconnaissance trip into the temple. He was there not as a tourist, but he was there to see what was going on and to see the realities because the very next day he's coming back and it's game on. Now friends, the words of R.C. Sproul help us here. This is what he says. John's gospel tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And the phrase that is translated dwelt among us literally reads tabernacled among us. That is because Jesus has fulfilled everything Everything the tabernacle pointed to, he is the sanctuary. When he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he was speaking of himself. The temple activities that were going on in Jerusalem were barren. Why? Because they were void of an understanding of the true heart of God. Jesus is coming to the temple because that's where God is supposed to reside among his people. He is their answer. And yet, there were all these distortions that were taking place in the temple. So Jesus entered the temple and had a look around. And the rest of chapter 11 and 12 will tell us what he is doing or what he was going to do. Let me just finish up with, uh, with a couple of concluding thoughts. I do want to draw your attention to Malachi chapter 3. If you want to turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, you'll say, well, where did that come from? Well, Mark's gospel begins um, by quoting Malachi chapter 3 in particular in talking about John the Baptist. Um, and I think it's helpful for us just to recognize that what Jesus is doing is rooted in the Old Testament, but um, I'll just read here from Mark chapter um, chapter 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the first part there is from, from Malachi. Now Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Let's, let's just read it. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Hmm, sound familiar? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Come where? To his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So Jesus will start his work 
here at the temple. But he'll finish his work on the cross. You could even say from the tomb. So here are the three things I want to leave us with here. And it's, it's more of a framing thing, but it's to cause us to consider. Number one, our king has come. The gospels are screaming at us that Jesus has come. What was fulfilled in the Old Testament has been realized on earth. Jesus has come. And he has been revealed in his coming. Just like we talked about, it's the gospels where Jesus is put on display. He is revealed. And it's, it's the book of Acts where he's preached. And it's the epistles where he is explained. He has come to save and to serve and to restore us to himself. He has come. And the, the, the gospels are screaming at us, pay attention, see who he is, see what he's done and then respond by faith and embracing him as the true king of the world that he is. Secondly, our king continues to come. You say, well, that's kind of a strange theology, Pastor. I've never heard of that. I know he's coming. I know he's coming again. Yes. But Jesus, in leaving his disciples, said, I'm sending you another one, a comforter, and this one, another one is another one of the same kind. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the Godhead still present with us. And so every time you place yourself under the ministry of God's word, every time you are praying, every time you're interacting on things that are biblical and spiritual, you are interacting with the Godhead. Jesus is still at work in your life. The Apostle Paul says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? To complete it. He is still at work in us. And so the ongoing ministry of God in our hearts is that daily pursuit to be more and more like Christ. We want Jesus in our hearts. We want him looking around. We want him revealing to us the ways we've distorted our worship of him. So uh, there's a sense in which what I'm, what I'm trying to point to here is that Jesus goes into the temple and it's in the temple that he begins to see the condition of Israel by the barrenness and what's lacking there when Jesus comes to us day after day after day and he looks into our hearts what does he find Now I say that as a challenge but I also say that as a joy because it is because of Jesus and his ongoing sanctifying work that we become more and more like him and if we are going to be growing in maturity with Christ, we welcome him. It's come in. I know you're going to show me something that doesn't please you. But I know behind that, when I recognize it too, and I confess my sin and I repent of my sin, I am going to then be restored once again in fellowship with you. My eternal standing hasn't changed, but my, my fellowship has changed because of that sin. And he's constantly doing heart surgery. And friends, we want him there. He has come, and he continues to come. And that is such a wonderful thing. He hasn't abandoned us. But when he comes, he's coming in a serious way to speak the truth into our lives. But then our king is also coming again, right? And we long for his return 
to finish out our salvation, to fully set up his kingdom. How he comes the second time will be different than how he came the first time. Just listen to some differences here. The first coming of Jesus, he came to die. The second coming, he will come to reign. He came on a donkey. He will come on a warrior's horse. He came as a humble servant. He will come as an exalted king. He came in weakness. He will come in power. He came to save. He will come to judge. He came in love. He will come in wrath. He came as deity veiled. He will come as deity revealed. He came with 12 disciples. He will come with an army of angels, thankfully, right? He was given a crown of thorns. He will receive a crown of royalty. He came as the suffering servant. He will come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, our king is coming again. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is our king, but he's a very different kind of king. Not a king created by the thoughts of man, but a king that is a reflection of the heart of God for us. Lord, help us today. We have settled into this text And Lord, there's some things that we need to wrestle with still. Maybe our view of you is distorted. Maybe our understanding of who you are has been shaped not by your word, but by a culture. It might even be a Christian culture, but it is a distorted view because we are not fully aware of who you are. Lord, help us to be humble and teachable, to to grow and to learn and to develop a, a right understanding of who you are as our Messiah, why you have come. And Lord, help us to recognize also that that yes, you've come to set us free, you've come to save us of our sins, but you haven't come necessarily to lift us out of um, financial difficulty or, or health problems. You promised to be with us and give us counsel and wisdom for those things. But Lord, our ultimate salvation, our ultimate relief will come when we enter into heaven proper. Sometimes, Lord, it's so easy to get our eyes on this world when we should have as our focus heaven. And Lord, I know that there are people here today who are struggling, and Lord, I don't want to make light of that. You don't make light of that, but you are far more concerned about their relationship with you and the struggle and the suffering and the turmoil that they may be going through may be the means by which that you are seeking to get their attention so that they can have what is more important taken care of. And Lord, that is their relationship with you, their soul moving from this place of being an enemy to this place of being a friend. You are our great king. Help us to see you for who you are, not for what we want you to be. And to know that who you are is far greater than we could even imagine. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. You are powerful. And we worship you today, Lord. We praise you for who you are. In your name, amen.